Thank you. Good morning. I know that uh, I know that I'm not on. The red light is on, and I am. There we go. Take two. Good morning. Uh, thank you for being here. I know you're making a pretty significant investment of your time to be here. I hope by the time we finish up, you're going to feel as though your investment has been well made. We've got two primary goals that we hope to accomplish by the time we finish, insight and equipping. I'm hoping that we can gain deeper insight into the issue of homosexuality and into the biblical position on homosexuality and then as a result that we will be better equipped. So we will be putting an emphasis on being equipped to dialogue and being equipped to serve people who are impacted by homosexuality or transgenderism or bisexuality. So those are our two primary goals today, insight and equipping. Now we're gonna try to achieve those goals by doing five sessions together. We will do three before we break for lunch, two after lunch. I'll try to keep each session approximately 50 minutes long and we'll try to keep us on schedule and uh, out of here, as Chris said, by two o'clock. So we'll begin by laying a foundation talking about our apologia, the reason we stand where we stand. Then the next two sessions will largely be about dialogue. How do we dialogue with people who hold a pro-gay or pro-lesbian or pro-LGBTQ viewpoint? What kinds of people will we be dialoguing with? And what are some of the arguments we are most likely to hear? After that, we will break for lunch. Then after lunch, we'll talk about what to do when someone you love is gay or lesbian. When homosexuality hits home, how do you respond to a family member? How do you sustain the relationship while maintaining your position? Then finally, we'll close by talking about the pro-gay interpretation of the Bible, which is gaining more momentum worldwide. How do we respond then to people who claim that they are both gay and Christian? The whole idea being, again, how to better understand the issue from a biblical perspective and how to be better equipped to deal with the issue from a biblical perspective. So with that in mind, let's start with session one. You should have your outlines there. If anybody does not have an outline, would you please raise your hand so we can make sure you have one? Anybody missing an outline? Great. Our apologia, why we stand where we stand. Pretty critical starting point, we are called to answer. I guess we could stop right there and define ourselves as, among other things, stewards of truth. Stewardship, that's a critical biblical issue. Paul asked the Corinthian church, what do you have that you have not been given? Whatever you have been given, you have been entrusted with. One thing we have all been given is truth. As those who have been given truth, we are thereby entrusted with truth, and that makes us stewards of truth. That is to say, we are to handle truth wisely. We are called then to answer for who we are, where we stand, what we want. You remember John the Baptist as a controversial figure, and he was nothing if not controversial, taking a controversial position. And when the religious leaders of his time asked him, so who are you? 
are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. And then they asked him a critical question, which I believe the culture is asking all of us today. What sayest thou of thyself? How do you explain who you are? How do you explain where you stand? And in response to that, we make our apologia. We get our word apologist and apologetics from this Greek word apologia. Uh, per Strong's Concordance, the apologia is a verbal defense or a reasoned statement or argument, a verbal defense or a reasoned statement or argument. For example, when Paul was called to give his verbal defense at that time when charges were read against you, you would hear the charges, then you would take to the witness stand and you would offer your apologia. This is my defense for what I am accused of. Uh, so our apologia then is basically our defense for where we stand and why we stand where we stand. In the interest of being better able to offer our modern apologia regarding sexuality, let me offer five points in this first session that I believe are critical to a biblical position on homosexuality. Creation, corruption, culpability, commission, and compassionate conflict. Let's look at each of these. Let's start with creation, because that is, as Julie Andrews said, a very good place to start. That is where it all began, isn't it? What's the first thing we read in scripture? In the beginning, God created creation then. That is to say we are created beings. It's one of our foundational beliefs as Christians. We have a creator and our creator created us with intentions, created intent. That's why whenever somebody asks me, why do you believe homosexuality is wrong? Why do you believe pornography is wrong? Why do you believe sex before or outside of marriage is wrong? I believe that foundationally because I believe we have a creator and that our lives are best lived when they are lived within the intentions of our creator. I don't start with a response like, well, I believe homosexuality is unnatural, or I believe porn is lascivious, or I believe sex before marriage is irresponsible. I believe all of those things. But undergirding those beliefs is my belief in a creator. We are created. That is to say, we have a creator who created me with intentions. Revelation 4.11 spells it out beautifully. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For thou hast created all things, and for thy keyword pleasure, they are and word created. Thelema, pleasure. That is to say what one wishes or has determined shall be done. Now, when I personally repented of homosexuality back in 1984, this was one of the verses that pierced my heart. Because the question to me was, am I living within the will and according to the good pleasure of the one who created me? The question was no longer, does God love me? I knew that. Or did God make me? I knew that. But rather, am I living according to the good pleasure of the one who created me? Uh, yes, that is Revelation 4.11. 4.11, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Now, we believe then that if we have a creator, there is a logical outcome of that belief, isn't there? And that is created intent. You've never created anything without an intention. When you create, you create with intention. 
Therefore, if I believe that I have a creator, it is reasonable to believe that my creator created me with intentions. Now, would a responsible creator create something with intentions without communicating to his creation what those intentions were? Of course not. Thereby, it stands to reason that our creator would wish to communicate to us plainly what his intentions are. And this is one of the primary reasons it is reasonable, logical, to assume that he would inspire men to record in a document which is authoritative and inspired by God our Creator's intentions, thereby we find those intentions spelled out in Scripture so that we don't have to sit around and guess what our Creator's intentions are. Now, when I am speaking to someone who is not a believer, I will grant that they may reject all of this. And they may. But they will also almost certainly grant that while they do not agree with my conclusions, my conclusions are reasonable. It is reasonable to assume that if you have a creation, there must be a creator. When I sit down at a dinner table and I see a meal prepared, I don't assume that it evolved. I assumed there was a separate person who created that meal. So that is a reasonable belief. It is also reasonable to believe that the creator would communicate his intentions to the created. So while people may reject this foundational belief for whatever reasons they may have, I do think people will agree that they are at the very least reasonable beliefs. Which cuts to the question of moral issues. How do I determine what is moral or what is right? It gets back to the concept of created intent because if I have no creator, I am my own God. If something seems right to me, then it is right. If something seems just to me, then it is just. And that is a logical belief if, in fact, we have no creator. But if we do have a creator, then what matters, and this I would underline in bold ink, what matters most is not what seems natural or right to me, but rather what is deemed natural or right by my creator. This is something, of course, humanity will always wrestle with. Because as I hope to show as we go along, there is frequently a conflict between what seems natural and right to us and what has been deemed natural and right by our creator. Thereby, if I am going to answer to a creator for how I have stewarded the life he gave me, what matters most is whether or not I am living in accordance with his intentions. Thereby, the concept of created intent is foundational to any discussion on homosexuality. But that leads also to the concept of corruption. Corruption, that is to say, we are fallen beings. We are beings created with a nature which is imperfect, sinful, and thereby not what our creator intended. Because apart from that doctrine, a lot of our lesbian and gay friends would logically say, okay, I agree, we have a creator, there is a God. Our God created us with intentions. I'm gay, therefore God intended me to be gay. And that's a very reasonable position to hold if it were not for the doctrine of corruption, fallen nature. Fallen nature is the nature we inherited from our father Adam, which is not 
what our Creator intended it to be. Now, the only people who could with integrity say, I am exactly as I was created to be, would be, of course, our first parents, Adam and Eve. Before sin entered into the environment and the human experience, then they were exactly as God meant them to be. After that, all bets are off. No one since Adam has been born exactly as God intended that person to be. All of us were born with a sin nature, which has manifested itself and continues to manifest itself in a number of ways. So after the fall, we would have to say that, yes, we are all created by God, very true, but we are not all God created us to be. Those are two separate things. We are all created by God. We are not all God created to be, which accounts for the fact that we have many feelings that are very natural to us and deeply ingrained, but are not what our Creator intended. You almost certainly do not relate to the desire for a homosexual union, but you must be able to relate for the desire of something which is not in your best interest. Look no further than our eating habits. There is a difference, isn't there, between hunger and craving. Hunger speaks to what our body really needs. Craving speaks to what we frequently want but don't really need. And isn't it interesting how that plays out? When you wake up in the middle of the night craving, I would bet you pretty good money that you're not saying to yourself, what I wouldn't give right now for some steamed broccoli (laughs) with lemon juice. Oh, yeah. No. What do we crave? We want the grease and the starch and the carbs and the sugar and all, you know, we want something rather junky. That tends to be what we crave, which is not in our bodily best interest, but is a deeply ingrained craving nonetheless. And you can fill in the blanks as to how many other areas of life that concept of craving versus hunger would apply to. We crave many things that are not in our best interest, and more to the point, we crave many things that are not within God's will. That's how the sin nature shows itself. Now, that is especially relevant to our discussion today because there are few areas of life in which the concept of craving versus hunger shows itself as plainly as it does in our sexual experience. Much of what our Creator intended for us sexually does not come naturally to us. To many men, for example, monogamy does not come naturally. It cannot be logically argued that monogamy is not in the best interest of all involved. It is in the best interest of all concerned. And yet, frequently, men feel a desire to go outside the bonds of monogamy. That is a craving. That is not to say I believe women are exempt from that. Of course, there are many women who also at times desire to go outside those bonds. I would only say because I work primarily with men in counseling, I find that frequently their sexual desires would take them outside of the boundaries of created intent, regardless of the fact that they may love their wife very much and want to stay faithful. Fidelity does not always come naturally. A lot of believers struggle with the temptation to use pornography. It is a very deep craving which our Creator never intended. We were not meant to engage in sexual fantasy with phantoms. There is nothing healthy or good or right about that. And yet, the multi-billion dollar porn industry proves that there are many people who create 
crave that very experience. Many of us have been wounded sexually by violators or perpetrators, and there are those in the male population and the female population who also experience cravings for union of a sexual nature with the same sex. That is to say, then, the reality is we crave many things our creator didn't intend, but that does not mean he intended it. He intended it all to be good. What's the very sweeping statement he made when he looked on everything he had created? Earth, sky, animals, land, Adam and Eve, and their raw, naked sexuality, that is very good. In fact, the Hebrew wording in that is rather emphatic. It's almost like God was applauding, like, yeah, I like that. That's good. And uh, looking at Adam and Eve and the situation they had, I'll bet it was good. I mean, perfect environment. Um, the curse hadn't happened yet. Nobody had to get up and go to work in the morning, you know, a lot of time. Perfect bodies. You imagine never having to suck your gut in when you take your shirt off? Just, <laughs> hello, Eve. Give up all that for an apple, go figure. Now, what is one of the key things God communicated in what we often call the curse? After Adam had sinned, Eve had been deceived. They were both thereby corrupted by the sin that had broken their communion with God. He made a pronouncement that is critical when he said, in essence, henceforth the human experience will contain things I never meant for it to contain. You're going to die. I didn't mean that to happen. Your body's going to decay. I didn't intend for that to happen. You're going to get into these weird power struggles with each other as man and wife. I never meant that to happen. The very environment now is going to be adversarial to you. You're going to have to work it with sweat to make it cooperate. Now, you think about the fact that initially man was commissioned to take authority. The environment was perfect. Everything was in harmony with the will of God. So taking authority was one thing at that time. Now authority is very problematic because there's a lot of pushback to authority of all kinds. Why? The sin nature. Sin entered into the environment, thereby the human experience would continue to contain elements God never meant it to contain. That's why we can say with integrity, yes, we are loved by God. Yep, we are of infinite value to God. And, not but, we experience many things internally and externally that God never meant for us to experience. That is the human condition. That is also why, critical point, we judge what is right or wrong by the word of God, which he has revealed, rather than taking our moral cues from our internal experience. Our internal experience is one which has been severely corrupted and thereby it cannot be relied upon. Much of what I want to this day as the 67-year-old, spirit-filled, sanctified, married man, much of what I still experience is a desire for a number of things and a number of behaviors that are clearly outside of God's will. Thereby, much of the experience of sanctification is not only growing from glory to glory, but also growing in our ability to say no to whatever we desire, which may be outside of God's will. Now, that leads to a third point, the third C, culpability. 
If we were created with intention, but we have fallen from those intentions because of Adam's sin, because of Eve's deception, because of the sin nature we inherited, are we thereby not innocent? I didn't ask to be born a sinner. I didn't ask to be born with all of these crazy contradictions there are in the human experience. And I found as I developed that I experienced many feelings I didn't ask for one of which was the sexual desire for the same sex. I never chose that, I discovered it. Early in life I realized among the many feelings I have which I did not ask to have, this is one of them. Well, if that's the case, am I therefore not innocent? Because I didn't ask to be born a sinner, thereby I cannot be judged? No, that leads to the doctrine of culpability. That is to say, we are a fallen race, we are born in sin, but we are also aware and culpable. Why? Because truth can be known and is known of humanity. By revelation, the word of God, by conscience, that internal mechanism God has created in all people, and by observation, what we can plainly see, whether or not we choose to acknowledge it or ignore it. Those are at least three ways we can and do know truth. The word of God, which is very manifest, has been preached openly for centuries. I will grant some people have less access to it than others, but that is a primary informing element in society. And then, of course, there is conscience, the inborn internal mechanism God has created in all people, and the capacity to observe and to observe it with a rational conclusion. Uh, Paul said that very well when he was talking about the fact that everyone's guilty. He, in, in the book of Romans, he lays out a legal argument, which is pretty brilliant, by which he proves everybody's guilty. Starts with Gentiles, moves on to Jews, and by the time you get to Romans 4 or 5, you're like, I give up, which is, of course, the idea. But regarding Gentiles, he says in Romans 2.15, because that which could be known of God is manifest in them, God has shown it to them. That's actually Romans 1.19, then moving on to 2.15. He said, they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness in their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. That is to say, human beings whether or not they have been regenerated by the Spirit of God, whether or not they are born again, they do have the capacity to determine the fact that some things are wrong and some things are right. There is also such a thing as intuition. I go out a bit on a limb here because I certainly don't think intuition is authoritative. I would not guide my life by intuition. And yet, there really are some things that are intuitive and some things that are counterintuitive. Now, just for example, by and large, when we are in the presence of a woman who is pregnant, we are deferential. We're careful. There's sort of a sense of, oh, how you doing? Everything okay? We, we automatically defer to the fact that there is life growing inside her. Do you remember anybody ever teaching you to do that? I sure don't. It was intuitive. That's why, personally, I believe abortion is one of the most counterintuitive acts a person can commit, because it goes against something so very basic. I think intuitively we know if we are born male, we are male. If we are born female, we are female, and that that is an unalterable state. So I think there is something intuitive which protests when people say, I realize you see a bodily male, but I want you to call me by a female name. 
Now, we may choose to do that, but I believe in many cases it goes against what a person feels intuitively. There is observation as well as intuition. If we are simply observing anatomy, not to be immodest, but to be very plain about the whole thing, if one looks at female anatomy and one looks at male anatomy, one will draw a logical conclusion. Thereby, homosexuality flies in the face of a very logical conclusion. For all of those reasons, there is culpability. Conscience speaks, which a person may or may not decide to listen to. There is intuition, which a person may or may not listen to. And by that standard alone, all are not only guilty for having been born in sin, but very important, for having also fallen short in their behavior of what God intended and in the process of it, yes, having felt guilt. Even if somebody did not tell them you should feel guilty. You, generally, you probably saw this with your kids. I did, and I, I got great sons. I couldn't ask for better sons, but for heaven's sake, they were born sinners. And I don't know if you noticed the first time you caught your kid in a lie, but generally, you probably noticed they don't lie, and when you catch them and they go, oh yeah, I lied. There's, um, um, you know, why? Because in so many cases, they didn't take a crash course on why you should be honest. There is something intuitive in the little darling, which is testifying against lying. This is culpability. Thereby, we are born as created beings. We are corrupted by the fall, but we are still culpable for having manifestly fallen short in our behavior, not only our inborn state. But that leaves the church then with a commission, which is a fourth critical part of our apologia. What do we do as the body of Christ in light of the fact that humanity was created by God with intention because of the fall humanity has become corrupted and humanity is culpable and guilty before God that leaves us with a commission. Let's try to remember the urgency of the early church. Candidly, I wish we had more of that today. When the gospel was being preached according to Luke in the book of Acts, there was a wonderful simplicity about things, and that, I believe, created a sense of urgency among the early believers. People were either dead or alive, saved or unsaved. Something was either true or it was false, moral or immoral. And based on that realization, these people, in the face of very genuine life-threatening persecution, were like, you need to know the gospel. And it was not just the apostles preaching, was it? It was the believers who were scattered preaching the gospel. Why? Commission. Commission. They understood we have been commissioned with an answer to the human condition. God created us and loves us. We have fallen from created intent. We are thereby guilty before God, and there's nothing, nothing we can do about it in our own strength. We have an answer to that. And so there was the urgency of the early church shown in commission. There's a twofold commission, right? There is commission, of course, to preach the gospel and to make disciples. Both. Now, at this point, many people will say to you and I, Okay, you Christians, you believe what you believe about created intent and about corruption and about culpability. That's all well and good. And you have the right to believe that, bless your little ignorant hearts. But do you have to be so noisy about it? Do you have to talk about it so much? 
do you have to get so, what they would say, in your face about the whole thing? Now, to a point, I appreciate that argument because I do think there can be a fine line between zeal and obnoxiousness, right? I have been guilty of gross obnoxiousness when I think of some of the tactless, aggressive, stupid ways I have tried to communicate the gospel to people. Um, well, if somebody had shot me, it wouldn't have been persecution, it would have been justice, you know. <laughs> um, and I think if, if we are arrogant, if we are inconsiderate, if we are rude, if we are judgmental, if we are tactless and graceless, and people are completely turned off by us, that is not persecution. That's people responding to us logically because we're acting like jerks. So I get it. If God's representatives are arrogant or obnoxious, no, we have no, no right to ask for credibility. But there is a difference between legitimate and illegitimate expression. And legitimate expression frequently is met with a lot of pushback, isn't it? That doesn't change our commission to know the truth and be conformed to the truth and then express the truth as stewards of truth. Now, that includes preaching the gospel, of course. That twofold commission. Preach the gospel to the unsaved. That is self-explanatory. People who die without Christ are permanently lost. We must, with clarity, be communicating the answer to the human condition with a clear, didactic, easy-to-understand presentation of the gospel. That is part of our commission. Another part of our commission is to make disciples. When people are born again, we're not going to be satisfied with them just being believers in Christ. We also want them to be followers of Christ. There was never meant to be a difference between a believer and a disciple. That was always meant to be part of the same package. But today, unfortunately, yes, there are many people who are believers in the sense that they believe the right doctrine, but there's not much evidence that they are following. A disciple learns about her master, his master. A disciple follows her master or his master. When we are disciples, we are, for the rest of our lives, learning about our Lord and we are following our Lord. This is what we wish for people when they come into their churches. First, that they be saved, and secondly, that they follow for the rest of their earthly lives. How the heck are you going to fulfill either parts of that commission if you can't talk? You have to communicate. Christianity without communication is no Christianity whatsoever. It is God's ordination that his truths be expressed through his people. And that is to say, in order for us to fulfill the Great Commission, we must insist on the liberty to plainly speak the gospel and to plainly give the full counsel of God to those who have received the gospel. And what will that lead to? That's uh, our final C, compassionate conflict. Compassionate conflict. We are created beings who are fallen and thereby corrupted. Yet we are still culpable and guilty before God, which means that the church has a commission to be offering the answer. We must first avail ourselves of that answer and be born again. Having been born again, we are commissioned to preach the gospel to the unsaved and to disciple the saved. And as a result of that, will we get applause? Eh, thank you for playing. No, we will not. Well, yes, yeah, sometimes, I'm sure. But largely, what are we going to get? Compassionate conflict. Compassionate on our end, not always on the other person's end. But yeah, there's going to be pushback. There's going to be pushback. 
which I don't like. And I think it's kind of weird when anybody likes conflict. I find that either masochistic or arrogant or both. Uh, I don't enjoy tension with people. I don't like crossing people. I don't like knowing that there is something between us that is a source of conflict. But it is unavoidable. And I oftentimes nowadays see conflict the way I would also see labor pains. Birth comes through tension and great struggle and, and great pain. And people are born. And people are born again frequently through struggle and conflict and great pain. People are brought back to truth through struggle, conflict, and great pain. Because frequently when truth collides with error, what are you going to get? Conflict. I remember speaking at a seminar somewhat like this about 20 years ago. And we got invaded by a group called the Lesbian Avengers. And they came with whistles and with, you know, bullhorns and things that they were throwing at us and stormed into the sanctuary and security had to call the police. And it was one of those big scenes. And they, it, it happened. It doesn't happen as much these days. Uh, I think largely gay militancy has made its way so into the mainstream that they rely less and less on guerrilla theater as they used to. But regardless, these were the days of guerrilla theater, and we accepted that as part of the package. And one of them was really screaming in my face and angry and calling me everything but my proper name. And I couldn't get anywhere with her, so I said, okay, hey, whoa, whoa, time out, okay? You're telling me what a creep I am, fine. If, if you need any help in understanding what makes me such a creep, or if you need any more details on what a creep I am, I can tell you so you can add to your list. But we're not talking about me. I want you to do just one thing before the police come and take you away. Go home, grab a Bible, look at the Gospel of John, and all I'm asking you to do before you open that Bible, pray to the God you may not believe in and ask him to open your eyes. I'd like you to look at what Jesus claimed about himself, who he was, is, what he promises to all people, and what he requires. His claims, his promises, his requirements. That's all. Okay, bye. Well, I thought that was that. And it didn't seem like much to me, like, well, I'm spitting in the wind here. This is such a zoo and it's such a weird scene we're in the middle of. That's not going to bear any fruit. I go to a conference, I don't know how many years later, I think it was at least seven years later, down in San Diego, California, outside the county where I live. Registration table, there are people volunteering, and this, this very lovely young woman gets up and comes over and gives me a hug and says, do you remember me? And I did not, I had no idea. And I said, can you, know, can you help me out? I'm terrible with people. And she said, well, I was terrible with you. And then she started telling me some of what she had called me. I said, oh, yes, I remember. <laughs> ah, you, yeah. I know that voice. But this was a completely different person. I mean, and I don't just mean in grooming and dress style. That's very secondary, although that really had changed. Demeanor, tone, everything. And she said, here's the deal. I was so mad at you that I hated the idea of you getting the upper hand with me. I wasn't going to let any man get the upper hand with me. So I accepted your challenge because in my own heart I had to know I didn't let that guy intimidate me. I took his challenge. I'll go read that stupid book by that stupid guy named John and see what that Jesus had to say about himself. You know, and so she did. And she read and she read, and the more she read, the more intrigued she got. 
And the more intrigued she got, the more she decided she wanted to know more until she finally wound up visiting the church. And then she kept going to that church. And after a while, yeah, she was born again. She was baptized. She had become a committed believer. And now she was volunteering at the very kind of conference seminar that she used to protest. But it all began with conflict. This is something I especially want to stress in 2022. Those of us who have been converted from error to truth did not get converted that way because people niced us into the truth. By all means, we should be speaking nicely, respectfully, gently, absolutely. But the reality is, when we are more concerned with niceness than clarity, we're not giving people what they need. Compare it to the Titanic, okay? The Titanic has hit the iceberg. It's going down. There is only one way people will live if they get into the lifeboats. Your job as one of the stewards is to get them into the lifeboats. Now, I don't see any reason to be rude about it. Get into the lifeboat, idiot. I think that is counterproductive. But the fact is, what matters more than the tone is the content. If you are afraid that by telling people there is only one way they can get into the lifeboat and be saved, if you are so worried about offending that you tell them, well, um, we're having a little technical difficulty, the orchestra is still playing, I can get you a cup of coffee or cocoa or brandy and make you comfortable, you might enjoy a, a game of shuffleboard while we all die, then okay, you've been very polite and very nice and respectful, and they died. The main point you're trying to make is, there is only one way you will survive. Here is the direction to the lifeboat. Get into the lifeboat. Clarity is charity. When you are clear, you are being charitable. Now, by all means, let's try to watch our tone. Let's be considerate. Let's be sensitive. Let's be respectful. But let's you and I never let our desire to be sensitive and respectful override our commission to clarity. Because our tone becomes rather irrelevant if people do not understand what our message is. If you look at the messages in the book of Acts, Peter's message, John's preaching, certainly uh, Philip's preaching, and Stephen's preaching, and Paul's preaching. If you'd have heard those guys preach, you might not have liked them, and you might not have liked what they said. But doggone it, you would not have walked away not knowing what they said. You would know what their message was. They were not ambiguous. They were very clear. Clarity is charity. Clarity absolutely will create conflict. Well, yes, it has to. Not because we are looking for conflict, but because conflict is inevitable. I would rather get along than not get along. Given the choice, I want to be on good terms with everybody. And part of my own neurosis is, just to be blunt, I'd really like it if everywhere I went, people held up a sign that said, Joe Dallas is really a very good man, you know, because that's the people pleaser in me. But, and this is important, if God is striving to bring someone to the truth and you are reluctant to be clear about the truth, what are you doing if not opposing the work of God? God is striving to bring someone to truth. You are reluctant to express truth with clarity. You are at odds 
with the purposes of God in that person's life. Now, I don't want to be at odds with people, but given the choice, I'd rather be at odds with people than be at odds with God. I know that both as someone who has been commissioned to speak truth just like you are. I also know that as someone who has been the recipient of truth just as you are. And I remember when truth was calling me back to truth in 1984, it was with struggle. I didn't like the people who told me the truth. I didn't like what they had to say. And it didn't matter to me how lovingly they said it. If you give someone a lethal diagnosis, a terminal diagnosis, no matter how gently you say it, it is still a terminal diagnosis. But then you offer the, the prescription, which makes it no longer a terminal diagnosis, where basically you say you have a serious condition which can be healed, but this is the only way to do it. Well... If I had not experienced that conflict, I'm quite certain I would have died of AIDS within a few years. There would have been no marriage. There would have been no fruit of my union with my wife. There would have been no two sons. There would have been no ministry. There would have been none of the life which our union has produced. But it was produced not because somebody told me what I wanted to hear, but because someone was clear with me. This is why Paul told to Timothy as part of the job description for anyone who says, I want to be a servant of the Lord, good for you. This is your job description, 2 Timothy 2, 24. The servant of the Lord must not strive. We're not here to be contentious. We're not here to make arguments with people. But be gentle to all, approachable, as much as possible, non-offensive, considerate, sensitive, absolutely gentle to all. Apt to teach. Apt to teach doesn't mean, well, I'll say the truth if I have to. Apt to teach is I'm looking for opportunity to speak the truth. When you're apt to teach, it's like, Lord, today, please, Send me into a situation where someone's heart is being worked on, where you will give me the wisdom and the clarity to speak the right words. Let me be, and this is a vital prayer, let me today be part of what you want to do in the life of somebody. Let me be a part of that. And with that in mind, we're looking, apt to teach. It's not always wise to say something. I know that. There are plenty of times it's wise to shut up. I get that. But we look for opportunity to speak. There is that sort of even if you want to call it like the, the, you know, chomping at the bit horse that wants to get out on the track. Please give me an opportunity, apt to teach. Patient, because you're going to go out of your mind if you're not. If I sow the word of God, I must patiently wait for that seed to sprout. I must be patient, recognizing I cannot override somebody else's free will. I cannot soften somebody else's heart. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. So I patiently will wait, as we all must. Patient. In meekness, instructing those who oppose themselves. In meekness, like, hey, I don't get to throw any stones. Not with my track record. My goodness, lightning would strike if I ever let myself get self-righteous. If there's anybody who does not have the right to self-righteousness, it would be me. In meekness, know who you are by the grace of God. Instructing those who oppose themselves. Interesting point, isn't it? We think of sin in terms of pleasure, which is true. Sin is pleasurable. When I repented of homosexual sin, I repented out of obedience. 
Well, I knew it was a sin. The word of God said it was a sin. This is not what God created me for. I'm not in God's will. Okay, I repent. I am doing that out of obedience to you. I want to get back to serving you. I want to live an obedient life. That's a good start. Now, it's been almost 40 years since then. I think I've learned by now that repentance was not just an act of obedience to God. It was one of the greatest favors I ever did for myself. What Paul is saying here in meekness instructing those who oppose themselves. It's not in their own best interest, whether they know it or not. If peradventure, God will grant them repentance according to a knowledge of the truth. We are sowing seed not knowing the outcome. I don't particularly like that because when I do something, I want to know the outcome. But when it comes to sowing the seed of the word, again, all bets are off. And I'm lousy at guessing where the good outcome is going to be. There are people I have spoken to who I thought, not a chance. That was dead in the water. And other people I've spoken to, hey, that's a disciple in the making, I can tell. And I get it wrong all the time. I've given up on predicting who's going to respond and who isn't because I, I can't see it. Well, we don't have to. But we sow in hope realizing if peradventure God will grant them repentance, and God does grant repentance, it's what happened to me. It's what happens to people all the time. All of which is to say then, as we are sowing seed, our message to our lesbian and gay friends would be, we want to be good friends and neighbors to you. Of course we do. We have our differences. Our worldview is probably different. Our moral structure is different because our worldview is different. That's true. But we have some commonality. We are all loved by God. You, my lesbian friend, my transgender friend, my gay friend, you're loved by God, I'm loved by God. We have that in common. We were created in God's image. We have that in common. And be honest, we've all fallen short of God's will. Whether or not you even think homosexuality is a sin, I'm sure you would not tell me, my lesbian, gay, or transgender friend, that you're perfect any more than anybody else is perfect. Nobody is perfect. We've all fallen short. And I think you'll agree on this much. If you believe that there is a God, you must believe that he would want us to be living our lives in conformity to his will. That's what we want for ourselves. And that is what we want for you. Now, God, help us to be able to deliver this message faithfully and lovingly because, and I hope we can stress this in our time together today, you and I have got a date with the judgment seat of Christ. We are going to answer for how we have stewarded what we have been entrusted with. To that end, God grant that we be good students who know the truth, that we be obedient disciples who live the truth, and that we be apostolic and respond to our commission to express the truth. On that note, let's take about a 10-minute break and come back here at 1010, and we'll get into our two sessions on how to put this um, created intent and this apologia into action as we dialogue. Hey, by the way, please keep in mind, if you want to uh, check out some of the books I've written on this, if you go to my website, joedallas.com, I've got some books here at the book table, but uh, most of my books are not available right now, but you can get them at my website, and you can also, of course, sign up for a free ebook if you go to our table. I'd be glad to send you an ebook I wrote on pro gay arguments and pro gay theology. <laughs>